Welcome to Season 3 of Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you New York Times best-selling author of more than 30 books, Virginia Cantra. Virginia's most recent novel, The Fairy Tale Life of Dorothy Gale, a contemporary story inspired by The Wizard of Oz, was just released this week. Virginia is in conversation with her longtime friend, Sonali Deb, USA Today best-selling author of numerous Bollywood-style love stories. Among many accolades, Sonali was deemed the best romance writer from the American Library Association and was listed for the Dublin Literary Award. Virginia and Sonali will take you on a wild ride through Oz in their discussion on Frank Baum, self-worth, suffragettes, and the importance of men who can cook. Inspiration starts now. Hi, Sonali. Hi, Virginia. It is so great to see you. I am so excited about this conversation and to talk about uh, everything. Well, I am thrilled that you were free to join me today because for people who don't know us, we have a long friendship. I remember the first time we met at a writer's conference, maybe in the bar, um, and you were so warm and lovely. And I had already read your first book, The Bollywood Bride. And I just thought you were so talented. We were both up for awards last year. And I was like, I want to be your friend. And <laughs> Wish <now> granted. We... <laughs> 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 and now we are friends. Um, and I think when you're a writer, that's such an important part of your life because we live in these little little cubicles of of creativity and paranoia yeah well tell me about it and uh and and i i remember really distinctly um our first meeting because you were virginia cantra and i had just i mean i was uh unpublished sonali and i remember it was um it was a it was a little pre-awards reception because we were both nominated. And I remember you coming up to me and very graciously saying you had read my book and all of that. And I was, you know, I mean, it totally, totally blew me away. But I remember my eyes straying to your lanyard and your your badge. So this was a thing at that conference where people had like really loaded badges with all the pins from, you know, various other awards and things like that. And you had about, I don't know what, like 20, your entire badge was full of pins uh, from previous nominations and wins. And my eyes, I think, just kind of went round <laughs> like they're going right now. And um, and I was like, wow. And I was looking straight at your boobs. So, <laughs> so, I rem- so then I quickly apologized. I'm like, wow, that is impressive. But, um, but I'm sorry, I'm staring, you know. And, and, I, and you said, you looked me flat in the eye and you said, go ahead and look, honey. This is the only time of the year where there's something to look at down there. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I am going to be her friend forever and um and and since then this was i think more than 10 years ago and we have mm-hmm. since our you know our friendship is so incredibly precious to me and we talk almost every day so the listeners know um you know we're continuously texting um and and so in this very very lonely um world of uh, of of trying to create stories um you are very much always holding my hand and I feel so blessed about that and I'm so excited to share that with the listeners. Well, you've always been all those things for me, I think, especially during the pandemic oh. and with the the book that's coming out December 5th, The Fairy Tale Life of Dorothy Gale, you were even more that for me because you were an amazing, not in addition to the usual hand-holding and brainstorming, um, you were also an amazing resource because the fairy tale life of Dorothy Gale is a reimagining of sorts of the the Wizard of Oz, and I gender flip the Cowardly Lion uh, as a, a Punjabi Sikh British um, young woman named Riti Parr, and you 
held my hand again and kind of talked me through everything from pronunciations to uh, family interactions and and also I think gave me some of Reedy's loving fierceness, which I think is a, a part of your character. So, oh so that was absolutely wonderful. That's so sweet. And, and, and I think, you know, those conversations are long, long conversations while we both took walks during the pandemic, um, you know, to kind of get into Riti and, um, you know, and Dee and, you know, and, and those two incredibly uh, interesting uh, men who we will talk about more. But it was, it was, you know, such a part of my day and uh, so important. Now I will say, I'm 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 not Punjabi and I'm not sick. Uh, and no. uh, having said that, I have a very close family and I've I've grow I've lived in Punjab um, because my father moved around all over India. And um, and and the one thing I will say with with some confidence that I I'm sure I have not gotten wrong is the pronunciations. <laughs> so at least that the uh, you know the the rest and of it we do our best. Some- you did check stuff for me because you had yeah. people in London yeah. that yeah. you could run things by for me, which was incredibly helpful. Yes, and um, you were. I, I love that you were so focused on, uh, you know, on that because I I remember speaking with my friend who is actually Sikh Punjabi, born and raised in uh, in London. And, uh, and and there were parts where, you know, she was a great resource, uh, you know, f- for you and for us uh, with this story. But there were, there were things where I was like, no, no, we're not, you know, <laughs> we can't. That's not how we can do this. And, um, and you were absolutely, you know, so um, exactly how you should have been, which was that I want to, I'm, I'm absolutely focused on getting this right in terms of tone and not taking the easy way out, which is often, you know, the easy way out. So, so, so let's come back and talk about, um, you know, uh, and talk about um, the fairy tale life, um, you know, and, and D and where, um, where that story came from for you. And we've both written um, retellings of classics. We've both, uh, we've both. I, I've written four, you know, four novels. This is your third. Uh, I've, I've written four novels with Jane Austen. My, my four favorite Jane Austen novels, and you've done Little Women. Um, you know, both um, Beth and Amy um, and uh, Megan Joe. Yes, <laughs> brain fart. But um, so this is this again is your third overt. You know, I think we are we're all influenced in our work often uh, but but your overt retelling so tell me about I the I had the Wizard of Oz uh, for me personally was obviously the movie I don't I don't know that the book was ever anything is is there and you know tell there us. Is, okay so the original <laughs> the original book came out in 1900 it was what? the great American fairy tale so the movie, which is in 1939, everybody's familiar with it because it was broadcast on TV for more than 30 years. So I remember watching it with my sister in the living room with our parents. And whenever the witch came on, I would run into the kitchen and hide oh. until she was gone. <laughs> I, mean, I, so I, could, I could hear her, but I didn't have to see her. And then I would sneak in. Um, but the the book was actually one of the first chapter books I read Uh, and I loved it and you and I I think have talked about the stories that formed us yeah and I think the Jane Austen books were are that for you yeah um and I admire you so much for taking them on because they're they're like I I don't know that I have more to say um about Jane Austen's stories. So it is interesting when you approach a a retelling or if you're inspired by one of these stories that shape you as a writer, as a woman, as a person, um, what is it that, how do you find your way into the story? And the way I found my way into The Wizard of Oz 
was indeed the character of Dorothy Gale, or for the movie watchers, Judy Garland, because she's not on the face of it a very prepossessing heroine. Uh, she is either a prepubescent farm girl from Kansas with no magical powers of her own, um, or she's a, a cute girl with a kind heart and kick-ass red shoes um, who stumbles quite inadvertently into either she gets hit on the head and dreams the whole thing up, or she does indeed go to this magical kingdom. But what she is, is she's an ordinary female character. She's like the every woman of the story. And she has to make her own way. On, she has to negotiate a hostile landscape on grit and kindness. And for me, that was a really important thing to focus on. And part of that original Bond story, and we should talk about this at, at some point, he was actually married to the daughter, Frank Baum was married to the daughter of one of the original suffragettes in the United States. And in their marriage vows, it was noteworthy enough that the paper noted um, that the bride's group vows were exactly the same as the groom's. Wow. So the usual obey stuff didn't come in. And if you look at The Wizard of Oz, the, the books or the movie, all the people of real power are women. Which is such, you know, I mean, such a rarity. I, we, we've been talking about influence, right? And then why why these particular books? And we are, um, you know, we're, we're women of a certain age, <laughs> you know, even though- I'm, a, I'm of an agier more than an you. An agier but, age okay. than me, but, but I mean, I think, you know, for context, I'm I'm 51, grew up in India, but but why these particular stories, right? Why, why are we so drawn, um, I think, to these particular stories? And for me, I can say that, uh, you know, I was in middle school and everything I was reading, um, and of course, thanks to colonization, I was, you know, being educated in English, lived in this very... Um, you know, anglicized bubbles. So the the reading, um, school being, uh, you know, in English, most of my reading was in English. I was also surrounded by, you know, Bollywood and stories my grandmothers told and my, you know, all of that. So it was a mix, but across the board, whether it was, you know, Western literature, which I was reading or, you know, Indian, the Indian epics and, you know, Indian literature that I was consuming, there was a real, um, I think, dearth and almost, um, al al almost complete absence of female protagonists, especially female protagonists who asked for things, desired things, demanded things, and got them. Right. So if you if you were if you um, first there weren't any. We were following all these men doing these heroic things in history on screen on the page, all of that. Um, and if not that, then, um, you know, if, if there happened to be a woman who, who took up more than a page on a uh, on the paper, she was written where, you know, sacrifice was glorified, you know, um, perfection in what you do for others. The supporting role was always glorified. Uh, I had not until I think I came across Lizzie Bennett, come across a woman who, um, you know, who A, a kind of, you know, was was that opinionated who didn't pander uh, to society, to the aunties, you know, um, to be liked by men whose, you know, being chosen wasn't the thing. And, um, you know, and, and she was literally loved for her opinions. And, um, and, and it completely blew my mind. She dared to want things and she got them. That is the even bigger thing. She wasn't, the, the story wasn't, didn't exist to teach her how she was wrong to want things, how she was wrong to cross boundaries, how she was wrong to reach for, you know, things. She actually did those things. She also did the work, you know, to become the person, uh, you know, who was a better person than when she started. She did that work. So it wasn't like, you know, but 
it the thing she wanted which is to be loved for who she is you know to spend her life with somebody who was worthy of her was a thing i had never seen on the page or in stories around me and it completely made it okay to be me because we all grew up having some natural sense of self-worth because that's the human condition right nobody's born thinking i suck and i shouldn't have things and uh, and and so i think women at least up until my generation were taught to systematically crush that through stories through everything we were hearing about ourselves in the world and it is stories like this you know in the world around us that that resonated with our natural need to matter right and i think for me that changed who i grew up to become and that's why those stories are important and i had never really actually thought about the fact that uh the wizard of oz as a movie uh back then might have been you know one of the few where it was centered around a young girl now i <clears throat> i think again wizard of oz i watched for the first time probably at the end of elementary school and um and totally boring off the uh, you know <laughs> unrelated story is our neighbor this is the time when v- the vcr had just come to india um it was not shown on indivis- indian television but the vcr had just uh, come to india and our neighbors uh, you know her un- my my best friends like my you know neighbor friends uncle worked in nigeria and he had come back with a collection of vcr tapes um you know video tapes and one of them was uh the wizard of oz so that was so we watched it over and over and over again at the time and uh you know and there was a little bit of oh what is going on here because you know it was the 30s in america which was very removed from the 80s in india and all of that but i still i mean it's you're absolutely right the idea that uh, and also i love how it's so off its time because behaviorally and all of that the kindness the you know the the sweetness that is expected of girls and all of that dorothy does embody and yet so being badass with that, you know within a context isn't that something that is like stories we grew up with i it's so tell me about that well i think i think there's that and i think there's also this sense i, I was an english major so when i'm reading books as part of my curriculum you know as a as a young academic person um you read about women and they can even be protagonists but what you learn is they fall into unhealthy relationships and then have ch- children out of wedlock and have to wear a scarlet a on their chest oh, or they have okay sex with miserable men and then throw themselves under the train thank you know and so exactly yes, <laughs> yeah thank you anna karenina So I think or Jane Eyre who I idolized for years and yet when you actually look at it from in the context of the power differential and the fact that he's her employer um you, so thank god for Jane Austen say I Yeah but uh, but even with Jane Eyre if you because I thought about this because also my my grandmother was a huge fan of Jane Eyre like this was you know um every afternoon summers when i spent with her like i would cuddle up with her and she would tell me the story of that mr rochester she was completely in love with mr rochester like that was her ultimate hero and um and and so i i grew up with this and i always thought it was a very very sad story and um but but i think in retrospect the fact that that there is that story is about right and wrong in a very moralistic religious way i think you know to tell you what what a good woman should be and what you know what morality is and so it's very interesting i think that's a piece of it but but having said that with all his power dynamic she is someone who is able to say no you know this is my she is she yeah. is his only equal and in fact her insistence on her moral truth actually pays tribute to his first wife in in because she will not ignore the existence yeah. of his, of his of his wife in the attic you know yeah that's so, that no, whole sanctity I, of marriage and goodness and you know what what uh, what makes us in the eyes of god a good you know a uh, good morally upstanding person but but i digress but the fact the fact that her life will hugely improve if she allows this man to bully her into a marriage you know that yeah. he feels is his right and probably in you know in today 
outside of the context of morality, it is. And uh, and and I think that um, that the fact that she is a so mor- so conditioned uh, by the rules of her time whatever the reasoning she is able to say that this makes me a lesser person and i will not do it and and walk away i think she stands up yeah. to him yeah and that was actually another <clears throat> part of the wizard of oz story that kind of drew me because one of the so there were two two poles that that tugged me first of all i was writing during the pandemic now when were you yeah was it was it the vibrant years are love, lies in other love languages that you were writing, like in that time when you and I were texting each other and zooming and going, "This is bad." <laughs> it was. It was vibrant years. It was vibrant yeah. years, and the last of the Austin books, which is the Emma Project. I kind of wrote <gasps> those during the. So I had a very productive pandemic, which is you know. Um, and I don't mean that insensitively. I mean that as, uh, you know, as, as that level of becoming in, internal. And um, it, it, I was able to do it in a very healthy way, um, you know, to, to stop running around. I was, I was literally running around like a headless chicken all through 2019. Um, you know, we... we 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 traveled like I think 365 days of that year and I just kind of totally broke my own you know social capacitor and um and I think by the time that that you have to you can't leave the house came um you know it was it was not for me personally I, I understand the large-scale tragedy of it and even today when we look back to the time how terrifying it was to not have any idea. Now we have hindsight, but we had no idea where any of this was going, right? Um, you know, and, and we, we could have all just been dead. That was a very real possibility. And so all of that notwithstanding, I think the sitting and and kind of thinking about what it means to be me, what it means to be human, what it means to not run around, you know, um, and, and to kind of just internalize, uh, you know, all of this fear and all that. It was kind of... Um, the experience for me is my writing really was my, you know, was was the rope. My writing and my writing community, which is you, was what was, you know, what was the rope that I held on to while we were all in that dark, dark well. So, so I. Well, I think I think your writing was indeed from coming out of that was very vibrant. I was finishing up Beth and Amy and then I started this book and where. I really connect to the movie is there is an iconic scene where Dorothy, who has now her, her, her little gray Kansas farmhouse has been caught up by the tornado and landed with a jolt and she opens the door on Technicolor. Now the movie coming out in 1939 this was, I don't know if it's the first movie in Technicolor, but it was One shocking that yeah. it switched from black and white to full vibrant color. And I was writing this book to a large extent um, when, I, when there was no full vibrant color. And yes, please, I wanted to go over the rainbow. I wanted to go anywhere. I wanted that sense of of joy and wonder and imagination and it that was very important to me in to to recreate it which is why oddly the book is set in ireland because it's my the emerald city is always dorothy's destination i originally was going to set it in seattle because that's also nicknamed the emerald city (laughs) yes and it just, it didn't feel far away enough. It didn't feel magic enough. It didn't feel big enough. Wow. So we ended up at Trinity College, Dublin. I, I loved that. I mean, I think, and, and so have you ever been? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> not, not, I mean, during the opening parts, no. And if it weren't for Bernice M. Murphy, and Bernice, if you're listening to this, thank you, thank you, thank you, who is um, an associate professor of popular literature at Trinity College, Dublin. This book could never have been written. Um, but 
so I did that. I had a subscription to the Irish Times. I lived on Google Maps. Um, I I was doing all the research remotely because we could not travel. During the last stages of writing the book, we got to go to Dublin. What I did not expect was I was going to have my own Dorothy moment. <laughs> that from the time we were on the bus driving into Dublin to our hotel as the sun rose, I had lived in Dee's footsteps for so long that I kept grabbing my husband's arm and going, Look, there's the River Liffey. Look, we're crossing the Grand Canal. Um, there's the church that Dorothy goes to Christmas morning. Even to, the, I mean, we were walking down uh, the street to get to Trinity College where I was meeting Bernice. And there's a long wall. Uh, the campus is, is, is walled off. And I, and I pointed over the, the stone wall and I said, there's the roof of the arts building, which is where wow. I'm going. It just, there was this, this incredible sense of homecoming. Wow. Um, that I, that I completely did not anticipate that, that just, it, it was amazing. It, it was magical. It was great. So, so yes, I've been, but it was, it was late in the process and I almost feel that that made it better. Did How you did ever you find did you ever have to like did you tweak anything after having seen it i did okay so for one for for example um the the writing program at trinity college is in uh, the oscar wilde house and there are several oscar wilde houses in dublin it's sort of like george washington it's like he slept here but the, but the writing center is in the oscar wilde house and i was using the street entrance when i wrote the book there's the but the faculty and students actually sort of go in through this secret entrance in the basement of the science building, I which it. I didn't know about and wouldn't have known about until we we went there. We stayed in in D and Rites and Tim's neighborhood of Ballsbridge, um, and so I had a lot of fun putting some of my favorite pubs and restaurants in the book. <laughs> for that reason. I love but, it. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I love it. I mean, similar story. I think also for me, um, I always had this idea of writing, uh, you know, three generations of, um, you know, Indian, American Indian, you know, women um, on the dating scene at once. Because I, you know, I, I, I think like one of the running themes for all of my books is how far women have come. Right. It's all about how far we've come, how, you know, how we stand on the shoulders of those who afforded us the things they didn't have, which is our mothers and our grandmothers. Right. And and all of that is that journey. And so I think that the, the modern dating scene is as, uh, you know, as wildly, um, you know, uh, tangible a place to kind of snapshot that journey as anything, right? Because how my grandmother chose romantic partners and how my daughter does it is literally on two different, you know, universes. <laughs> yes, it is in terms of, um, you know, just in terms of, um, it's a whole different paradigm. So I kind of had this idea, as you know, sitting in my head for a very, very long time. But I know that during the pandemic, I consumed so much comedy like it was a thing that uh, really kept me going. Just stand up, you know, shows that are funny, literally like movies, Bollywood and Hollywood that I grew up, you know, um, falling off the couch laughing at. And, and so I knew that I would not have survived in quite as healthy a way if I hadn't consumed so much humor, you know. Uh, and so then I became almost obsessed with being able to do that, being able to meaningfully um, bring laughter into people's lives, you know, uh, and, and personally for me. Well, I, some of the, the misadventures, the romantic misadventures <laughs> that you tackle 
Uh, I, I'm thinking particularly of the vibrant years. Yes. Uh, I mean, I laugh out loud when I read those scenes and my husband is so amused. He's like, are you laughing at your own? Are you laughing at your own book? I'm like, yes, it's so funny. And so, you know, that's a that's a huge win. But it was very um, it was very mindful and very conscious to to sit down and to learn how the people who were making me laugh were able to do it, even when at the heart of it was, you know, was pain, was emotional, um, you know, disconnection and discomfort and all of that, how how the true comedy that really made me laugh was based in so much truth and all of that. So I actually broke that stuff down that other people were doing. So it was very conscious for me. Um, you know, just like traveling and leaving this confinement was conscious for you, I think, with, you know, with D. So, but, but I think at the end of just when we were first allowed to travel, um, a, 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 another couple and my husband and I, um, because we live in Chicago and, you know, I was not born to live in the cold <laughs> and starting now, which is November until April, I try to be as minimally miserable as I can, but I do not always succeed. So we're always trying to run off, you know, to warmer places. Uh, and so we uh so so we rented this little um you know they rented a place in naples florida where he has where our friend has family which is his uncle and aunt who are now i think like late 70s early 80s who moved here in their 20s probably right so we're talking moving here in like the 60s and um you know, and have done really well for themselves, lived their life in Chicago. And then now we're living in this very fancy condo community for retirees in Naples, Florida. <laughs> so the idea of, you know, of, of, and I'm always fascinated as an immigrant of, you know, by being in spaces where you're not expected, right? Being in spaces, um, you know, where nobody else expects you, right? Where you stick out, you know, and then, then making that journey of making that space your own kind of, um, you know, there's this, it's such a complicated, just existing in spaces is such a complicated thing when you're, uh, you're an immigrant and there's great space for humor. There's great space for kind of you know trying to understand humanity in general because how we treat somebody who is different from us says so much about you know us and the world we live in and all those things so so it was such a so I think when I visited them and the idea of them this you know this Indian American couple from who moved here when America was completely different and India was completely different and the world was completely different so so that it was such a layered wonderful thing to see them in that bubble uh you know and, and the level of comfort and discomfort that they brought to it so then i was like okay you know she's and and the idea of an indian woman who is very comfortable with her you know with her beauty and her sexuality showing up in this space and basically just turning everything upside down because she's such a hottie and you know and 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 uh, and and just what is the what is her story, right? And who she is, other than this, uh, you know, this this wild grandma who turns, you know, who turns all the, um, you know, all the all the <laughs> other seniors in this facility, um, you know, their definition of the world upside down um, was kind of boom. Like I was there, and I was like, okay, I, I have the story, but this is the setting for it. Well, I think one of the things I loved about that is not only how you you showed all the facets of Bindu's character and you showed different aspects of romantic interactions through the three generations of grandmother, mother, and granddaughter, but the other thing I liked was the way that you played with the dynamic between those three generations, because that's something that was important to me um both in dorothy's book and of course when i was doing the little women retellings is is that mother daughter dynamic which you and i are now of course experiencing as sandwich generation people absolutely and i think in 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 uh, dorothy gale too i think one of my favorite things uh, you know is 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 Dorothy's origin story, right? Because she has, um, here is this woman of like immense, uh, immense softness and empathy and, and wanting to live in the world 
and never causing damage, right? Her whole, like she presents um, as somebody who is treading, is tiptoeing through life because she doesn't want to be a nuisance to anyone else. And her journey to kind of, you know, retaining her empathy and retaining her kindness, but not needing to tiptoe, like really coming into her own, right? Like that story, but the origins of it was because there's this, this there's this whole thing we're raised with, right? As women, if we don't do our jobs as mothers, then we are going to cause lifelong trauma in our children, right? Which will then, you know, put that trauma out into the world and all of that. Like we were taught that you had to be a good mother because the repercussions are the destruction of your children and your family and all of that. And, and society. And society at large, right? <laughs> and 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 I think that we we have um we both write these these women whose mothers have done things that have caused this lifelong trauma, right? Um and and <clears throat> That's such a complicated place to be because what they were teaching us is not entirely unfactual, but but the the lens of it is that we can be no more than that, right? Not the lens of it is you do what you have to do and then each generation is stronger if you do it without apology, right? And so so that piece of Dee's history, talk about that. I think I think motherhood and also when you talk about her mother, her birth mother, it becomes impossible not to talk about Auntie M, right? And the whole thing. So that was kind of one of my favorite. I mean, there's many, many parts of this book and hopefully, you know, if we talk really fast, we'll, we'll get to them. But, but, <laughs> but this piece. I know, I was going, when we first, I was like, well, we'll talk for about 45 minutes. And we're thinking, yeah, we probably can wrap up in 45 minutes. And now I'm going, no. <laughs> yeah, you, you, this is the problem with talking to a friend. You have lots of things, things to, say. to say. And we've said so many of these things already, but we still want to say them. But yeah, so talk, you know, tell me about Auntie Anne. All right. So, so for me, um, I think there's a reason why most of the Disney princesses are orphans. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think Can I put when, that on, on a t-shirt? <laughs> um, or, 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 or they have, but it's true, right? And they, they have, they have daddies who don't get them um, and their, and their mothers are dead. And I think the reason is that when you, when you remove that support system, uh, that immediate, like, who's your person you call? It's often your mom. If you remove that support system, then it's, how do you navigate the world? Uh, that was an enormous challenge when I was writing Little Women because Marmy, of course, is the source of all wisdom. And, and I really needed to let the girls find their own voices and find their own way. One of the reasons I adore the cover of Dorothy Gale, and since this is a podcast and not a television show, I'll simply say it shows a young woman striding on her own down what surely does look like a yellow brick road. Um, but she's, she's, she's moving and she's solitary. And she's in Technicolor, which is lovely. <laughs> so many colors, yes. so many colors. Um, but I think that sense of, of who you can be when you're forced to be on your own was important. And the other thing I wanted to show was that, yes, there are issues with her birth mother that we won't necessarily go into here, but there's also the presence of M, who in some respects was everything and in some respects was not enough. And it was really important for me, I think one of, one of our tasks in our 20s and early 30s is to figure out all the ways our parents failed us and the task of our 30s and maybe 40s is to forgive them and move on and figure it out, you know, to be to be our Disney princess selves, to 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 move forward confidently on our own. 
Um, yeah, and, and also you said something really interesting there because we are both moms and we are both moms of sons and daughters. So we are moms of daughters and your daughter's in her 30s and mine's in her 20s and we spend, you know, and, and there is so much of your learned wisdom that I have, you know, that has helped me uh, survive motherhood, uh, you know, in, in as healthy a way um, as, as um, you know, has been possible. But, but I think that that being enough, right, can... Do you know anybody who has a mother that they thought was enough without having done the work to get there? Not like, you know, every single person I know has been through a phase where they have thought their parents, but specifically their mom, wasn't exactly what they needed and wasn't enough because is there a way to get this absolutely right, right? I mean, with Dorothy, obviously, there is severe abandonment and which stops her from seeing the person who's actually there, you know? Right. So because when we're, you know, because when a, a person is abandoned, then then that projection becomes a part of who you are, right? That you are always abandoned and especially when it's your mother, you know? And, and I think all mother-daughter stories or all mother-child stories are, you know, carry the hint of abandonment because we have to disconnect. This is another thing you and I talk about so much, right? The stepping back because until you orphan your child yourself in ways that are like, you know, she can never grow into her Disney princess self, which is such a terrible thing. Uh, you know, and, and I, that, I'm going to walk back from that awful metaphor, but, but <laughs> letting go, right? Letting them be all alone is the hardest thing um, as a mother. Uh, it should be easy because we're all like, oh my God, how long do I have to do this? But, and yet when it is, you know, letting them be and find their sea legs and, you know, stop them from being perpetual toddlers, that is such a part of um, motherhood where you have to step back and abandon them almost so they can stand by themselves and it's just such a complicated relationship which as storytellers is fantastic because we're going to be writing stories forever because of it <laughs> I'm joking. Well, I, think, I think the other part of it that's interesting is that our and we know this as mothers and we know this as daughters is your parents tend to see you as the child they knew and one of the things that we both write about, because we, you know, come out of the romance genre, and even though we're not writing strictly in the romance genre anymore, we have strong romantic subplots or, or you know, developments in, in our novels, um, is you want ultimately for your protagonist and for your daughters and for your sons as well to be with the person who sees them not as the child that you raised or knew, but as the best version of their adult selves that they can be. Yes, for that we have to abandon them. <laughs> Coming back. <laughs> no, but having said that, you're, you're so, so now, uh, <clears throat> you, that's that perfect segue, Virginia, because um, because because a couple things that so lies and other love languages, which is my book that just came out, and um, you know, a fairy tale life of Dorothy Gale, both do a thing, um, you know, which I never thought I never thought I would write a love triangle because love is such a two people choosing each other thing for me. Um, you know, that, that I think one of the reasons, one of the things um, that kind of caused me to explore uh, this story was how would that look like, you know, was actually exploring what infidelity means and is it a one thing? Because I was always teased, I think, on our, you know, our, our dear friend Barbara O'Neill, uh, you know, always laughs at my, my you know, almost... Um, uh, archaic view of you know the absolute it's an absolute trigger for me cheating is uh you know completely um you you cannot write a character who i deem uh worthy um of my respect if you show show them cheating right and that's just like a thing that i have a deep deep conditioning i have and and so i wanted to explore that and see the various conditions and what it ended up giving me is this really interesting triangle, which is a thing, um, which you know, we in, discussed yeah. while you were writing. Yes. Until we were blue in the face. And, and, um, you know, and, and, uh, I think we're both in marriages that we kind of discuss with each other a lot and all of that having, having 
said that, um, I, I kind of, did you ever think you would, is this the first time you've written a love triangle? Because I couldn't tell between, you know, Sam and um, uh, uh, Tom, Tim, Tim, that, Tim. <laughs> Tim, Tim Woodman, how can you guess? How can I forget? Uh, <laughs> and he's one of my favorite heroes ever. So, so oh, you know, tell me. Um, so when I started, I didn't know who she was going to end up with either. In fact, I suspected it was going to go the other way in my in my early noodling around uh, with the book. Oh, I would have I would have killed you. I would not have allowed that. <laughs> my version of that story <laughs> but you can see it i mean they're both yeah. they are both really attractive possibilities and since i am writing a younger woman i think she's 25 27 i have to check my notes um i think we're figuring things out right we're figuring out she's figuring out who she wants to be and part of that is who can she be with and who can and I think this is true in real life as well that that I mean I'm I'm with the same man for 45 years so obviously not only did I choose him but I continue to choose him uh but I think that there are other choices that are available to you while you're figuring yourself out and in the course of writing the book as I got to see her it was and as she got to know herself it was who else saw her. There's something um, when I teach classes about about writing romance, I talk about some, the vision of the beloved in the eyes of the lover. So you want someone who sees things in you that maybe other people don't see, who appreciates things in you that maybe other people don't appreciate. But and perhaps most importantly, if you're writing about a long term relationship, is someone who challenges you to become the best version of yourself. So I think that's true in marriage, and I think it's true in fiction. And so the exciting part about writing this book in particular, and I actually am doing. I'm I'm working right now on a on a reimagining of Anne of Green Gables where I'm dealing with the same kind of thing. There are two possibilities. There are two roads. Which one are you going to take? Yeah. And you explored that deeply in Lies and Other Love Languages. Yeah, Lies and Other Love Languages. It had more to do with you know you believe something about yourself your whole life and then. Are there situations in which, which all of that gets jeopardized, right? And then what is that in terms of character judgment? You know, what does that say about us, right? Not in the not in the eyes of the world, but about ourselves, because so much of this has to do with because being seen, right? I think the heart of being loved is being seen. So, so no matter whether it is in, in uh, you know, your, your closest friends, that thing they say, right? Like, why, why do, why these two people? Like, you know, when you're like cosmic dust, right? Why do two particles? And I think it has to do with nothing but us wanting to be seen a certain way. So the people who see us that way immediately catch us. So, so in the end, we're all just great big narcissists, <laughs> I guess, because we, you know, we have an image of ourselves, um, you know, so long as you're at least self-actualized enough to have a realistic image of yourself or who you want to be. So the people who see you as that are the people you gravitate toward. That's my general, like, you know, friendship and love life philosophy. But but um, having said that, you've said this before, you know, having more than one good choice. I don't think, again, the journey of women over time has been so much about these are just the darn choices we have and you're going to make the best possible one in that moment, right? This, this was the life of, um, you know, my grandmother. This was, you know, at this point, I have no choice. I am in this situation because I have, this is my, like, this is the, what the world has given me, right? So for us, when we're writing and we're writing aspirationally about how we want the world to be, then having women have several good choices, I think is a lot about, that and the power that that gives you you know uh, and, well, going and, back going back to your austin retellings you know 
we had not made Charlotte Lucas the hero. You know, she had, you know, she saw her choices. And she, yeah. And she made one, uh, which was in its own way empowering, except now the more time he spends, Colin spends in the garden, the better. The better, and I, yeah. I, I do think, I do think we want our women to have choices. And I also think right now, um, I want to say this somewhat carefully. I think women need choices. Uh, women, I would say it totally uncarefully. We, you know, I, I think I think <laughs> women need choices. Stand straight. Yeah. I think women need voices, and I think women need power. And I think the third piece of that, sorry, <laughs> interrupting no, you, no. is is kind of the piece, right? Because we do have much more choice than we've had uh, through the history of women, right? But but this idea that, you know, because we were told that won't make your life easier. And you're absolutely right. It doesn't make our life easier, but it makes our life more authentic. It gives us more power. And and men have always had so much choice. Nobody has said, oh, but let's make your life easier by giving you fewer choices because you poor thing, you don't have the ability to make them because we absolutely have the ability to make them. And do we mess up? Sure. Does it make our life terribly complicated? Sure. But it makes it the life we want to live. And I think that's what it is about. It's about power to live your own life in the way you want, not saying, oh, I have two bad choices, which is the least worse, you know, <laughs> and, and being Charlotte Lucas. And I think you're absolutely right, right? And she is much more, um, much more realistic as a character for many, many generations of women than Elizabeth Bennet. Not many women got to say to the richest man in England, uh, you know, that, sorry, you, uh, you know, you're not. That was uh, a crappy proposal. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, so the sorry. Is no. I choose destitution over a person I don't think deserves me is, is aspirational writing. And it's wonderful. And that's why it makes us starry eyed to this day, because we all want to be that person. We don't want to be the person who's saying, you know, I'm, I'm, do I want to be stuck as a spinster in my father's house all my life or do I want my own home and a husband who is like very annoying but I can think of him as mildly annoying and I'll be fine you know and, and women were doing that it's not unrealistic but it's not who we all wanted to be and it's not what got us here today and um, you know and, and I think that there is uh, there's absolutely something to be said about that but talking about good choices I think um, you know we, we, ha we have to we can't um, finish this un unless we've talked about men in literature, right? Because for all these years, we were seeing um, how women were written by men in literature. And the male, um, gaze. the male gaze, the male definition of a good woman, which we all have in some way, uh, you know, tried to live up to, um, you know, the, the sacrificial living for everybody else, smiling more, you know, font of kindness, point, you know, all of that, the thing that was, you know, part of all, all the women written and uh, we were taught to, you know, we had to break from that conditioning and we still are every single day. And and the opposite of that, I think, is true. We're often, um, especially in uh, when we write romance, we are um, accused of, um, you know, of, of doing this thing, which is unrealistic expectations, which when you look at the men we write, we're like, expecting somebody to be a good human being who treats you well, um, you know, and uh, wants to give you orgasms. Is is that unrealistic? <laughs> I mean, well, it's interesting that you brought up that you that you brought it up that way, because um, the trigger for the action in the fairy tale life of Dorothy Gale is actually if she gets involved with an adjunct faculty member who happens to be a best selling author at her writing program at KU. Um, and he pillories her in a novel. So he the book starts with him defining her. And and so that's the the tornado of humiliation and heartbreak that you know sends her across the Atlantic Ocean to, to Ireland. Um, and the entire book while it's about her romantic choices and it's about her personal choices and it's about her relationship with her, her dead mother, her Auntie M and her younger sister, 
it's actually about her defining herself. And so it was important for me when I looked at the men in her life or the men who were going to come into her life, that they be different, um, that they be worthy, that they also be flawed and have goals. And one of the advantages, of course, when you're doing a reimagining is you're writing about characters who are archetypes to a certain extent. And so they come with goals built in. So one of them has, wants a brain. One of them lacks a heart. Uh, and so I guess ultimately Dorothy is forced to confront the question of, do you want a man who has a brain or a man who has a heart? heart. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then we find that they both have both. They just have to look well, for I mean, it. That's, 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 <laughs> and I don't, I don't think that's a fantasy either. I At think, all. I, at all. And, and I think, you know, writing within, I think this is true across cultures, but writing in, um, you know, writing in, in the Indian culture, I think it was really important. And, and Veer, who is, uh, you know, who's the husband in this book, um, is, 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 they, they get to, he's a writer, you know, and, and she's a advice columnist who has seen great success as a, you know, as a self-help a guru and an influencer and so she be ends up becoming the this is not when they start isn't where how their life is supposed to be but it ends up where she becomes you know the the breadwinner and uh, he becomes the homemaker and it is and he it it's you know it's easy for him like this is a man who proudly you know likes to nurture likes to cook likes a beautiful house all of that right i know a lot of men like that but i think putting men on paper who own that and and she does she loves all of that obviously but she has a hard time you know publicly um you know for for at the beginning publicly like getting behind that because her mom is constantly making the little jibes about you know how how uh, you know she lies about the fact that her husband makes more than her and things like that and there is a moment in the book when he says when he says if you don't correct her you know you are actually saying what she's saying and 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 so even women as we have better choices bigger choices than the onus of you know allowing um you know the the men um that same space you know starts to you know, that's there that's where i think equity starts is where everybody kind of is taking care of everybody else without losing themselves and um and i think the when we write you know these men who aren't in d i think that neither man e both men are completely okay with d exactly how she is today and there is not nowhere in their language or in their inner dialogue that they want her to be a different D. And I think that that's, again, the great human dream, right? To be accepted for exactly who we are. And whatever journey toward being better is entirely internal and fueled by us rather than by seeing lack in someone's view of us. And so I think the, the, this great thing about Sam and Tim is exactly that, is that the way D is today you know, they, 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 she's the D they want. And I think that that's beautiful to see, to have two of those choices is so great. I love that. And of course, I, I enjoy the fact that we both have written men who can cook. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> and we're both bad, married to men who can cook really, really and well. And we're both so, married yes. to men who can yes. cook. Although, although I will say that Riti prepares your butter chicken. <laughs> I mean, of course. <laughs> Is that I a good love place it. For us? Yes, Is that I a think. Good place for us to stop. I think. I think we but can start. Yeah, yeah. Sonali, thank you so much for doing this with me today, and I'll 
I'll talk to you tomorrow. I, or later today, <laughs> Virginia. This has, been, so. this has been so fabulous. And, you know, and we could just go on uh, talking. But but I do, I, I genuinely think, um, you know, and I love all of your books, but I genuinely think that this is my favorite of your books, um, up, you know, up to this point thus far, <laughs> as they say. And it is um, because I think that balance of joy and empowerment and escape um, and just good old-fashioned sense and adventure is like so alive on these pages that I truly loved it. I think you've done an amazing job and thank you so much for letting me talk to you about it. Well, you know, that's that that really touches my heart because you know how much I admire both your keen insight into character and the exuberance of your writing. And so, yeah, when you pay me a compliment, I'll just go ahead and print it and slap it up on my bulletin board. Thank you. But yes, yes, thank you. And thank you, everyone who tuned in. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about our other episodes. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment.